Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Mark, chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. So we've just sung of making this request that the Lord would speak to us. He has spoken by His very Word, and this is the Word of God. Mark, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, He began to tell them what was to happen to Him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drank, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those For whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, 
let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. And would you now pray with me as we consider this. Almighty God, we thank you that you are a God who does the supernatural, who does the miraculous, who is able to do all things. We acknowledge your power and your majesty and your holiness, your utter ability to do whatever you choose to do. You are utterly free according to your own character, and we trust in your sovereign goodness. Lord, we praise you for it. And this morning, as we come on this Thanksgiving weekend, this Lord's Day, this Thanksgiving Sunday, we have much to thank you for, not least of which the fact that we can be here in such peace and security and that we have no fear of, of gunfire outside or missiles being dropped on our church or being arrested at this moment. We can just be here and we can sing your praises, we can read your word, and we can worship you freely. And so we thank you even for these undeserved favors that we enjoy here. But Lord, we come, all of us, this morning recognizing the world events that are going on and the troubling, the, the terrifying things that have happened as Hamas has attacked southern Israel. And Lord, we pray for the many there. We pray, Lord, that there would be mercy in the midst of wrath. Lord, even as there is justice meted out, Lord, we recognize that before a holy God, there are people who are entering into a Christless eternity speedily. And so, Lord, we pray that people would call upon the name of Jesus in this dark hour. Lord, even as... Paul prayed in Romans 10. We pray for Jews in Israel. We, we pray that even that our heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For the Palestinians, we pray, Lord, that they would come and that your house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And Lord, that you're even able to gather not only the outcasts of Israel, but even gathering a remnant from the nation. And so we pray for our Christian brothers and sisters, whether in the Gaza Strip or in greater Israel or throughout the Middle East. We pray for Christian brothers and sisters this morning. We ask that you would grant them protection and mercy because they are our family. And Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom even as we cherish all of the many blessings that you give us here in this country Help us not to take them for granted. Oh, Lord, we tend to be such a thankless people. Lord, fill us with gratitude and joy for these good things. We thank you that even today at the Thanksgiving lunch that many are hosting, that there can be a time of fellowship and a real rejoicing in the goodness of God in the land of the living. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have provided for this church in so many ways. You provided financially. You've provided with raising up workers, pastors, and, and various people serving in different ministries, whether serving children in Sunday school or serving in the worship team or serving in mercy ministries. So many ways, Lord, you've provided that for us. 
You have provided us with sources of income and ways to keep food on the table, and you've provided with us shelter. You've done so many things for us. But above all, you've provided for us a deliverance from the wrath to come. You have provided for us Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, the one who lived and died and rose from the dead and who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. You've provided him for us to believe in and to know that we are saved and delivered and that we have fled from the wrath to come and fled to Christ for refuge. Lord, may his refuge be our great focal point that we would not trust in princes, we would not trust in programs, we would not trust in the strength of arms or chariots or horses, but we would trust in you, the living God. And Lord, as we are troubled by various things, people struggling with various long-term illnesses, people even at this time of year estranged from family and feeling brokenhearted or wanting families that they don't have. And Lord, all of these sorrows, all of these cares, we ask, Lord, that you would comfort us and that we would rejoice with thanksgiving at the gift of your very word, your word that we can hear from now, attended by your spirit. Oh, Lord, bring your comfort to bear upon us this morning, on this Thanksgiving morning, for we do give you thanks and we ask that you would act for your own glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. To be or not to be, that is the question. It seems cliche to start a sermon off using a, a Shakespeare quote from Hamlet that maybe you've, maybe, I mean, maybe you took Hamlet in school. You probably not, don't even know what Hamlet's about, uh, but that you know that phrase. But for the Christian, a Christian that a Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. In case you didn't know, not just someone who was born into a Christian family or someone who shows up at a Christian church, but a Christian, one who identifies and believes in and obeys Jesus Christ. For a Christian. Such a, such a, a Christian like that, the, the question is not Shakespeare's, but it is this. To serve or to be served? That is the question. To serve or be served? That is the question. Is your life oriented to serve others or to get others to serve you? Is your life oriented to serve God or to get God to serve you? There's lots of religion that way, that is a way to try to manipulate God, to get God to serve you, to keep God in your back pocket. Jesus Christ is the subject of the Gospel of Mark. He's also actually the author of it, technically. And he shows us his own mission, and then the differing responses to that mission that he received. That's what we were just reading. He made a predictive promise in verses 32 to 34, and then he received what I would say are two different kinds of responses. 
And those two different responses make up a, a contrast of the, of the kind that sometimes we'll say, well, there's, there's two kinds of people in this world. And if it's a Western, there's two kinds of people in this world. Those with loaded guns and those who dig. But anyways, that's a famous line from a movie. You don't need to know about that. In the middle of, of this promise... And then these two responses, there's a hinge. There's a hinge. It's, it's, it's in the passage, in the literary structure. There's a literary hinge right in the middle of the passage. But there's also, I would say, a, a philosophical hinge for all of us, for each individual here. And it is the hinge that splits the two kinds of people in this world. It's that hinge that we need to heed and pay attention to that we're going to find. So, as we think about this, this question, to serve or to be served, I mean, you might be thinking uh, at this point about maybe a turkey that needs to be made. If you don't have that turkey in the oven by now, sorry, you're, you're out of luck. You're, you're, not, you're not eating turkey today. Uh, maybe late tonight. Uh, or, or maybe you're thinking about the turkey that needs to be eaten. Uh, that's, what, that's what you're dominated by. Or the, the dishes that will need to be washed or the TV that needs to be watched. Are you going to serve or be served? But, but I would just say that there's a gravity here and a profundity to the Word of God. This, this right here. And you must listen to His Scriptures as the most important thing in the world. It's more important even than the tragic horrors that have been committed in southern Israel, more important than the news cycle of today, more important than any of that, more important even than the family dynamics at your Thanksgiving dinner. Because you and I are about to be face-to-face confronted with and exposed to the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I know, you've been distracted all week just like I have been. But to be brought before God and exposed to God and consider Jesus Christ, that is the most important thing at this moment. This is, in a sense, then the hour of decision for you and me both. And that's what we're confronted with in this passage. Now we start in verses 32 to 34 with a promise. Now, now, you may be sitting here, and if you've just been in my class, uh, my class over in Luther Hall, we just talked about this. You may know the content of the gospel. You might know the good news. You know, the question we put in my class is, what is the good news? And then we have people answer. So you might know the, the key historical components about what Christ did in his life, in his last days, in his death on the cross, in him being buried in the tomb, and him rising from the dead on the third day. You might know that. But did you know it was predicted? It was predicted. Not only in Old Testament prophecies, the book of Isaiah that, that Pastor Paul led in the liturgy from, but that that those events, those historical events, were predicted by the Son of Man Himself. He predicted them. This is the third prediction. You'll 
you'll see in your heading, in your Bible possibly, Jesus foretells his death a third time. See, Jesus has the power to know the future. He holds your time and mine in his hands. Sometimes we think of Jesus just as our buddy. And he is a friend to sinners. But he is much more than that. He is able to know the future. Now think of all the things that we look to for predictions. You can look for predictions in the stock market. Or you can look for predictions in elections. You can look at predictions about how your kids are going to turn out. Or, you know, you can have predictions about this week. Is it going to be warm or cool? Is it going to rain or is it going to be dry? Is it going to snow at any point in Alberta? Well, you just don't know. Enjoy this beautiful day. Events, tragic, horrific events like the Holocaust or the Holodomor or the terror of Idi Amin or the killing fields of Cambodia, were they predicted? Or could you predict that maybe getting married could be so great? Or, you know, that having children could be so fun? Or, or getting older isn't all bad? Who could have predicted that? But these aren't the same as the predictions of the Bible. The Bible has predictions and promises that are in a class by themselves. Cyrus, the Persian ruler in the Old Testament, was identified by name a century and a half before he was born. Identified by name. Or the descriptions of Isaiah 53 of the sufferings of the servant are so detailed. They're so detailed that they're frequently used on Good Friday as simply a passage to preach about what happened to Jesus historically when he was crucified on the cross. But of all of Jesus' prophecies, and this is about Jesus himself as we see here, the predictions of his suffering, death, and resurrection are the most detailed and thrilling, really. Because he said, verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Right back to Jerusalem. Remember again, you've been looking hearing about Jerusalem on the news. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. Very specific. And they will have a verdict. What's the verdict going to be? Oh, they will condemn him to death. That's not not just condemn him to jail, but to death. Very specific. And then deliver him over to the Gentiles. So another very specific instance that's going to happen. And what are these Gentiles going to do? Well, they're going to mock him and spit on him and flog him. Well, maybe they would do that or maybe not, but he's predicting that that's what they're going to do. That's how they're going to treat him and kill him. He predicts it all. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus predicts and promises his own resurrection from the dead. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't know what's coming next week. Like I, am, I, have no, I mean, I'm trying to get, get my calendar in order, but I just, I am, I'm changing it constantly because I haven't got a clue how the next week's going to turn out. And here's Jesus predicting in detail what's going to happen. He is in a class 
by himself. You know, it's interesting, Justin Peters, uh, he's an apologist, an evangelist. He's speaking at the upcoming King and Kingdom Conference that's in your bulletin. I'm speaking at it. Many of you are attending. Peters noted, noted that none of the so-called prophets today predicted the Hamas attack against Israel on Saturday. None of them predicted it. They all claim to have that kind of this direct line to God, and none of them, none of them predicted it. And so Peters is very right to call out these false teachers, false prophets. He calls them out online and elsewhere because they, they make those claims about the future when they don't have it. By contrast, in our passes, Jesus could predict the future in this amazing detail. He could predict the court proceedings, the verdict, the mockery, the punishment, the murder, and the risen life after death. And it all came true. If it didn't come true, well then Jesus would have been a false prophet. And false prophets are condemned, as Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 13. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Like, don't follow this Jesus if this stuff isn't true. If he has not predicted it is true, do not follow him, because he's a false prophet. But of course, it did come true. He predicted it ahead of time and it came true. Deuteronomy 18.20, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. That's what Jesus deserved if he was a false prophet. But he wasn't. Jesus predicted and promised what would happen. He was putting himself on the line. And he did so so that his disciples would have confidence that what he said was true and that he was, in fact, the Messiah. See, you all, I know know kind of the besetting trouble that everybody in this generation has. And it's trouble. We all have trouble trusting God for the future because we're inundated by the algorithm and the algorithm is predicting all of this stuff for us and we think that whatever the computer spits out, that that's what reality is. And we fail to believe that our lives and all of history and all that's going on is in Christ's hand. And that's not just pie in the sky, oh, I hope that's true. It is evidentially true because he could predict the future because he knew it because he is the incarnate God. He knows. And so the relevance of Christ in relation to time is something that is precious for us that we can then trust him for our future. Aren't you struggling with can, can I trust God for my future? Aren't you struggling with worrying about things that are coming up? Oh yeah, you, you don't have any anxiety about what's coming up. You don't have any anxiety about this week or this month or the next couple of years or why aren't things changing or why haven't things come around the way I wanted. You're, you're not anxious at all. Yeah, right. Of course you are. But is, are your times in God's hands or no? And He has shown that He knows. And so the question is, how do you respond? Are you thrilled by the prophecies of Jesus? Do they show, ah, yes, I can stake my life on Him. 
Or are you skeptical of them? Unless, of course, they reveal some special benefit to you personally. See, like Joseph Smith, he's a false prophet. Or I should say, the late Joseph Smith, he's dead, false prophet. The late Muhammad was a false prophet. Their prophecies did not come true. Neither have Kenneth Copeland's or Joseph, Joseph Prince's or Creflo Dollar's. What a name. Uh, or Apostle Johnson Suleiman. He's got churches in town here. But Jesus is trusted and he has given evidence for his credibility in his ability to predict the future and make promises that are fulfilled to the letter. So he's got these promises. But there are two responses in this passage. Two responses to this amazing prophecy of Jesus. Two responses, and they represent, I would say, two kinds of people, two kinds of man. The right-hand man and the blind man. I know there's, you know, we want to be on the right hand and your left, but it's what we say, someone who wants to be the right-hand man, and then there's the blind man. Look at verses 35 to 40, we read. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And you think, wow, the audacity of these guys. But of course, they're taking advantage of what they knew about Jesus, such as John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus responded with a question. And this question is actually repeated twice in this passage. It's in the two responses with the two kinds of people. This is the first instance in verse 36. He said to him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? This is the question which shows what kind of person you are in relating to Jesus. Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? What, what do you want me to do for you? It's a question that's stated to the whole world. What do you want me to do for you? And it reveals where you're at. It reveals your heart. Are you wanting to be a right-hand man? Or, as we'll see, or are you responding as a blind man? Verse 37, they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So there you have it. The right-hand man, that response is to make a big, bold request in prayer. It sounds awesome. You want Jesus, you know, yeah, you want Jesus to have his glory. Yes, yes. Oh, Jesus, yeah, your glory. But you want to use the glory of Jesus for your own advancement. Yeah, you get the glory, Jesus, but I get the residual. I, 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 I'm looking out for me here. To be the power, I want to be the power behind the throne. Or beside the throne. Or near the throne. That's, that's what I want. I want to get in close. Imagine that, using... Godliness as a means of gain, as Paul put it. And Jesus said to him, you don't know what you're asking. 
which is the reality of many of our prayers. We don't know what we're asking. He says, are you able? Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's, he's, he, they aren't able to do that. They're not the Messiah. They're not the Son of Man. They don't have that ability. So it's rhetorically, he's asking this. Are you able to drink the cup? The cup of the wrath of God. To be baptized with this flood of wrath that is going to be coming on the Son of Man. Are you, can you handle that? Are you able to take that? And then, of course, with great audacity and a lack of self-awareness like so many of us, Verse 39, they said, we're able. We're able. We can do it. Yep. I mean, maybe they thought, oh yeah, it's going to be hard. We're in a, we're, there's going to be this political war. We're going to overthrow the Romans. Jesus is our new David. He's going to kick out all the Gentiles. It's going to be tough. And we know war is difficult. It's hard. We're going to be there. And yeah, we're going to face a lot of heat too. But we're We're able. We're with you. We're loyal. We can face all of that. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. What he's saying there is there is then the consequences of the wrath of God. For the Christian believer, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are saved from the penalty of sin. And progressively, you are changed and purged of the presence of sin. And you will then be without the presence of sin and glory. But nevertheless, you still face the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. And all of us will die. The question is, do we have hope beyond the grave? Do we have that hope? We will face even the consequence naturally of that death, but if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not face the second death. Jesus then said in verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. See, the incarnate Son, according to the human nature, he's recognizing that his heavenly Father is the one who has designated that that has prepared that for them. I mean, these guys, they didn't know about the cost of discipleship that awaited them. They didn't know how identifying with Jesus would lead even to their own martyrdom. They didn't know all of this. They didn't understand, but they thought that they were able because all they wanted to do was to be the right-hand man. They wanted to be the right-hand man. They, they wanted the glory without the grave. They, they wanted the crown without the cross. And that's what a lot of religion is. Want all the good stuff, but don't, don't, don't say I got to suffer. I want all this spectacular religious awesomeness, but don't tell me that I've got to die to myself. Don't say that to me. This right-hand man attitude is so prevalent in churches today that churches can hardly sense that it's wrong. I mean, who wouldn't want to be close to Jesus? That, that seems like a good thing. But see, it's easy for us to miss the fact 
that getting close to Jesus to use Jesus is blasphemous. Getting close to Jesus to use Jesus is blasphemous. Jesus is not here to be exploited. Samuel Rutherford, Scottish covenanter, he said, he said, the Son of Man, can't do the Scottish accent, the Son of Man holds no man's stirrup. Now you're like, what does that mean? It's a horsey thing. But you know, you you have the servant, the slave, He's going to hold your stirrup while, you know, old guys like me try to lift my leg up, put the foot in there, right, to get, to get on the horse. Christ holds no man's stirrup. In one sense, he's a servant, but in another sense, he's the king. He's not there for your exploitation. He's not there for you to, just for you to use him and exploit him. Jesus is not to be exploited. He's not our meal ticket. He's not our genie in a bottle to grant three wishes. And that's maybe how you're viewing Jesus today. You know, it's Thanksgiving Sunday. Oh, you're, you're thankful because things are going good. Yeah, Jesus has been successful as the genie in the bottle. I've had my three wishes. Things are going good. So I'm very thankful today. Someone else. Oh, Yeah, actually, it hasn't been going very well. There's been a lot of suffering and loss and pain. But are you thankful in the midst of it? Do you still thank the Lord in it? Can you see all of his undeserved favor to you? Oh, no, he's actually not really coming through for me. Yeah, but it's because you've got a wrong view of what Jesus is there for. You want to be the right-hand man. Because, of course, the right-hand man is the one who really thinks that they should be the boss. Right? I want to be at your right hand because I think I should be in charge. But consider Jesus with the wrath poured out upon him, washed, as it were, flooded by the wrath of God against sin on the cross. That's what he was predicting. That's what he was doing on the cross. And all those who believe in him, we were just in my class talking about it, If you believe in Christ, you actually have died to your old self, and your old self has been crucified. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's one response, is the right-hand man response. And I think... I think if we're honest, we know we can slip into this right-hand man response where we're using Jesus. We're using him as a, it's for us. We just kind of have him. It's about us and our glory. Yeah, you get your glory, Jesus, but I want to be at your right hand because I want to get my stuff. Of course, the other guys were in, indignant about it, but they were thinking all the same thing. But then what about the blind man? Jump down to verse 46 through 52. I know I'm taking out of the sequence, but you're going to see the point here. The blind man has a different response. He can't see physically. 
but he sees spiritually, and that's more important. He calls out to Jesus. What does he say to Jesus? He honors Jesus as the promised son of David. Son of David. The blind man thinks that Jesus is fulfilling the promise to David about his son in 2 Samuel 7.13. Your son, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this blind man is calling out to that fulfiller of the prophecy, son of David, son of David. And that's all he asks for. All he asks for, all he appeals to the anointed son of David is the only thing he asks for. All that he wants from Christ is this. Have mercy on me. I, I'm not here to use you. I'm not here, yeah, I want your glory, but I'm, it's going to, you know, rising tide floats all boats. No, it's not that. I don't, I'm not asking for anything. Have mercy on me. That's all he asks. Do you know what that means, have mercy on me? It's, it's please choose not to judge me, even though I deserve it. That's what he's at. Please don't judge me, even though I honestly admit I deserve it. Please withhold your justice from me, even though I deserve it and it is just even though I'm guilty as charged. Please reserve your justice. And that's why he's, he's calling out, have mercy on me. Are, are you asking God for mercy? Maybe you don't ask him for mercy because you're like, yeah, I didn't do anything wrong. I, I, got, I got nothing to ask mercy for. I got not, nothing against me. This is very, very different from the right hand man approach. This blind man was not appealing to Jesus so that he could climb some hierarchy ladder. He wasn't looking for a way to kind of grift off of Jesus' success. He wasn't a user. He just wanted mercy from Christ. That's all. And I'll tell you what, when you're in the churches, you see a lot of grifting and you see a lot of using. But when you see someone who says, woe is me, a sinner, or like Peter responded to Jesus, Depart from me from a sinful man. Or when you have this response, oh, oh, son of David, have mercy on me. Don't, please, choose not to exercise your justice on me because I really deserve it. When you have those things, when you see that, then that is true faith. That is the response that is appropriate. But Jesus then asked this very same thing that he asked the right-hand men. He asked the same thing to the blind man. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? 
and, and it's, it's really a question, as I said before, it's, it's put to each one of you today. What do you really want Jesus to do for you? Like, why are you here? What do you want him to do for you? Do you want mercy? Or do you want money? Do you want grace? Or do you want personal glory? What do you want? You want the healthy, wealthy lifestyle? Or do you just know that you don't deserve anything and you're asking, Lord, just please, please, if you could just refrain refrain from dumping on me what I deserve. Oh, hold it back, Lord. Thou would be so kind. There's a completely different posture there. What do you want from Jesus? But, you know, why, why be here on this Thanksgiving Sunday? What, you know, you just simply want his merciful character to be shown to you in the way that he likes See, this, this is the problem with this Thanksgiving stuff, right? Is that you have to be honest. I mean, you can fake it. You can fake it, but, but, you, but you really need to be honest. Are you actually thankful for what God has given you? Are you thankful for this life? Or are you, are you are, you've got a bone to pick with God and you're belly aching about the life that you've been given, right? And you've got to be honest. Am I actually grateful or not? And eh, maybe I need to repent of my ingratitude. You see verses 41 and 40 to 45, we have to go back then in the passage to see this hinge. And I order it this way because I think this is actually the key of the point between the two responses. But it helps for us to see the hinge at the end. It's the hinge. It's embedded in the passage. It's, it's right in the middle. So then it forms that hinge kind of in a literary way, but it's very theological and philosophical, and I would just say devotional. It's about you and Jesus. It's also a little bit you know, funny, I think, because when you have people who are chumming with the boss and they're trying to climb the corporate ladder... What does the rest of the office think? Right? What do they think? Do they like that? Do they like it? No. No. You complain about it to your coworkers that so-and-so is in the boss's office again. And he is, you know, he's chumming. He's trying to get in there. And then you say bad things about that person who is in with the boss. You don't like it. There they go again, trying to get in tight with the boss. But that's what you have in verse 41. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. But the ten guys, they're upset because they didn't get closer to Jesus first. They didn't didn't get there first. They, They didn't get the inside with Jesus. They all wanted the same status that James and John wanted. They all wanted to use Jesus' glory for their self-advancement. They just didn't like that the sons of thunder were getting in there, getting in those seats first. Like there's a lot of jealousy in Christian circles. Lots of jealousy. 
And you think, oh, well, they're getting something that I'm not getting. They're getting close to the pastor, or they're getting into ministries, or they get to do stuff in the church that I don't get to do, and they're jealousies, jealousies. So misplaced. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones, that is these rulers of the Gentiles, exercise authority over them. This is the key point that Jesus makes. And it is the problem with the right-hand man philosophy. The problem with it is that people want to get close to Jesus so that they can use Christ's lordship and use it over other people. They want to use Christ's authority as their own. But Jesus was saying that's how the pagan Gentiles operate. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, the world's way of leading, this is the world's way of leading, is always about the higher-ups putting their foot on the neck of the lower-downs. And the right-hand man always wants to be a social climber and get closer to the higher-ups so they won't have a foot on their neck and maybe they can put their foot on someone else's neck. This is, it gets pretty dark and ugly in a hurry, especially when you see it in Christian circles. It ought not to be. But we aren't dealing then with the petty power plays of men or office politics. We're dealing with our response to the Son of David. Our response to to the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh, the true and living God. So that's what we're dealing with. And he says, verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. See, the Lord exercising His Lordship is commanding you, you and me, He says, we are not to be like the rulers of the Gentiles who lord it over them. That's not how we're to do things in the body of Christ, among His people. Now, Jesus is not making a comment on nation states. He's not referring, for example, to Israel's right to defend itself from atrocities committed against them. And that's a different issue. He's speaking about a profound dynamic that exists in the church, among God's people, God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what he's looking at. And instead, you have Jesus, the sovereign, the emperor, the king of kings and lord of lords. He says this. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, must be your slave. And this is where we get the idea, you know in Christian circles, we get the idea of servant leadership. It's a really confused and misunderstood idea now because it's been so kind of distorted, I think. I think today in popular discourse, it's kind of morphed, servant leadership has kind of morphed into something like uh, leading from behind. (laughs) You know, just kind of wait, wait till other people kind of jump in there and, oh yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm glad you're jumping in there. I'm glad you're doing that, leading from behind. 
Maybe it's leading without committing to anything. Oh, I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm good with whatever you want. I'm not going to commit myself. Yeah, whatever you want to do. It's kind of become a sort of an agnostic management style. Yeah, I don't really know what to do, but we'll just kind of go ahead, sure. That's, what, that's servant leadership. But that isn't what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the leader, the one who desires properly to be great, to be godly in this case, with great sacrifices and great responsibilities, seeking great gospel advances, that person must be your servant. And do you know what makes a good servant? They're attentive, they're energetic, they're skillful, and they anticipate what you need before you do. You know, John Calvin, he had this servant posture, and he turned it into a slogan and into an emblem or a seal that he, he had. And this, so John Calvin's personal seal, it was a picture of a heart, a heart, a heart that was on fire. It, was, it had flames coming out of the heart. And, and this flaming heart was held up by a hand. And so you got the picture of the hand, a heart that's on fire. And the motto is this. My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. That is the posture of the servant. And it's the attitude of service to God, and it leads then to the logical outcome of verse 44. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Last Sunday, Calvin Heinrichs came up to me after the service, and he mentioned to me about this passage coming up, and how he'd heard a pastor speak on it, saying to the effect that this was a key foundation for anyone who wants to go into pastoral ministry. And, and I couldn't agree more. When we're looking at young men, we're, we're looking to see, young men for ministry, we're looking to see, are they offering their hearts promptly and sincerely to God? And we see that expressed in how they offer themselves promptly with sincere service to anyone and everyone that they meet. And they do it for the Lord's sake. My own failures in ministry are a result of having a right-hand man approach rather than the blind beggar approach. But like so many of Jesus' commands, he doesn't just order us to do things. And this is what's so wonderful about the Lord Jesus Christ. He just doesn't stand back and say, do this. He'll say, do this. And then he goes and he does it first. And we follow him in obedience. He provides his own personal example for us to follow. And that's why we're called followers of Jesus Christ. We believe in him, but as book of Revelation says, we follow the lamb wherever he goes. And Jesus said in answer to the critical question we started with, Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Maybe you know it as a memory verse. The Son of Man was, 
is and will be entitled to be served. He's entitled to that. He alone has that right. He has the right. He has the entitlements. The crown rights of Jesus the King belong to Him. He has them. He possesses them. He, all worship is owed to Him. But during the days of His humiliation in His mission on earth, He didn't exploit His entitlements. He didn't exploit them. He didn't press His rights. He didn't put His neck on the lower downs. Even the Son of Man, even Him, He came not to be served. He modeled a life of service. He came to serve in humility. Think of the ways that He served others in the Gospel of Mark that we've seen so far in this study as you've been coming over the Sundays. He came. Just let's quick list. He came. He came to serve the fishermen of Galilee. He came to serve the man with the unclean spirit. He came to serve the leper who needed cleansing. He came to serve the paralytic. He came to serve the hated tax collector. He came to serve the man with the withered hand. He came to serve the twelve who were called the apostles. He came to serve the man with the demon possessing him. He came to serve the woman with the flow of blood. He came to serve Jairus' daughter. He came to serve thousands of people who were starving and hungry. He came to serve the Canaanite woman. He came to serve a blind man at Bethsaida. He came to serve a boy with an unclean spirit. And more and more and more and more and more. But physical healing would only go so far. People needed to be delivered from the spiritual corruption of sin. And the only way to do that was for the sin debt to be paid in full. It's the only way. And so it is like paying a ransom, paying a fine, paying the penalty. And Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now that is a servant. He pays with his life to pay the debt that others cannot pay back. The cross and Christ on the cross, that was the ransom payment. It's the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It's not abstract. It is vivid and precious. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. We know that in war, many sacrificed their lives for others. But Jesus has sacrificed his life to save his beloved, to save his bride, to save his own people, even saving them for eternity. Now I close just with a simple ap- application. It's this. Jesus pays the sin debt of sinners through his work on the cross. He predicted it, and his promise came true. But then there's this problem for each of us right now, if you believe this. There's a problem, and it's what John Piper described as the debtor's ethic. The debtor's ethic. And it's that, this idea that Jesus paid so much, paid so much ransom for me. Now I must pay him back with all of my religious performance. Oh, you think nothing is too big that you could ask of me. 
I got, and I just got to keep paying it back. And you just live in perpetual guilt because, oh, I just got to pay back more and more and more. It completely misses the point. It completely misses the point. Jesus is serving us. He paid, paid, put paid, paid, done. You know, you put the stamp on, the, on your bill, it's paid. You don't, it's, oh, well, I got to keep paying it. It's paid, it's paid, it's done. Put it in the filing cabinet, it's paid, it's over. He paid the ransom. The debt is paid off. And he paid this ransom, and it's a gift. It's a gift. When you are constantly trying to pay God back, you are not accepting the gift as a gift. It's actually very, very ungrateful on Thanksgiving Sunday to keep trying to pay Jesus back. Accept it. It's a gift. Accept it. Embrace it as such. Don't be proud. You think, oh, well, I'm, you know, oh, you know, I, I got, I got, you know, there's no, no sacrifice too great because look what Jesus did for me. Well, there is a sense in that. But are you trying to make those sacrifices? It's not, you're not accepting the finished work. It's very arrogant. It's self-righteous. And see, there's a lot of us. This is where it really gets at our pride. Because it's kind of this false religious pride stuff. It really gets at our pride. Because we don't like to be served. We don't like anybody helping us. We don't like to be helped. Don't, no, I, I don't need your help. I got it. You think that if you're served by Jesus, then people will think that you're needy, right? If I went and we talked to each other and I asked, do you like it if people think that you're needy? Are, are, are you going to like that description about yourself? No, I don't, I'm not needy. What are you talking about? I'm not needy. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. The Bible says you're needy. You actually need this ransom. You need it. You need to be served by Him. We can't pay it. Jesus can. But we have to receive His gift and not be too proud to ask for it. So what was Jesus' question? What do you want me to do for you? How are you going to answer that today? You. How are you going to answer that today? Are you going to humbly receive His mercy because you need it? Or are you going to scheme about some way that you can use Jesus to get you in a better position in life? Don't be a right-hand man. Be the blind beggar. I'm just one beggar telling other beggars where to get food. Son of David, have mercy on me. And he will. He will have mercy on you. For he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And for that truth, on Thanksgiving Sunday, we can all say, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we are a, an ungrateful people, but we do want to give you thanks. Open up our hearts with joy and thanksgiving for the finished work of Jesus Christ, your Son, and I pray that many today, even maybe for the first time, would receive 
that ransom paid on their behalf and that they would know that their sins are forgiven and their guilt is atoned for and that they could live freely as children of the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we worship with gratitude the true and living God. Please stand. So much to be thankful for, and as we hear this word of benediction from Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 and following, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let us give thanks to God on this Thanksgiving Sunday. Go in peace. You're dismissed.